This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into any of the information that we're going to be giving you on today's podcast, we need to do a little bit of an update from last week's podcast, number 59. So for podcast 59, we looked at the March for Life for this year, and pretty much we're going to do that every year. Every single year around the March for Life, we are going to do an episode on abortion. But there was some news that broke that I talked about a little bit on episode 59 because I recorded it before it had actually happened. And so I didn't have time to get in there and make any edits to the recording before it went out live to you guys, but I wanted to go ahead and bring that up to you now. So remember when I was talking about Governor Cuomo of the state of New York and what the New York State Senate was doing? There was the potential that they were going to pass something called the Reproductive Health Act, which is not aptly named at all. But anyway, after I recorded this podcast and about a day or two before it came out, New York State, the Senate of New York State rather, passed the Reproductive Health Act. So it's a nice name. It's a nice piffy name. But let's actually look at what it accomplished. Essentially, the Reproductive Health Act accomplishes three things for the state of New York. Number one, it expanded who can provide abortions in New York. So obviously, we need more people that can do that. It's such a great thing for people. Great for women's rights. The second thing is it deletes abortion from the list of crimes in the state's criminal code which is obviously a signal to anyone that's going to maybe try to overturn Roe v. Wade at any point. But then the third and the most damaging and the most damning is that it is allowing for the murder of unborn babies up until the day of birth. Now, I know a lot of you guys, especially if you follow our content, anything on social media, you've seen a lot about this. And and really, there's a lot of uh, more right wing and conservative people that have talked about this a lot. Guys, I think this might be the turning point. I really think this might be the turning point for a lot of people because some people can kind of sanitize abortion. And we talk about that a lot. We've talked about it with the euphemisms that are used when describing an abortion. Oh, it's just, you know, getting rid of a pregnancy or terminating a pregnancy or, you know, it's healthcare, all these things. But everyone kind of knows what a baby looks like right before it comes out of the vaginal canal. Maybe because it's a baby right? Maybe that's why it's so easy for us to imagine that. But when we think about someone being at 40 weeks and going into the doctor's office, they could even be dilated, like ready. Their body is ready to give birth. But if they request an abortion in the state of New York, they can get it. And maybe the most uh, crazy and satanic thing of all of this was Planned Parenthood of New York City, of course. They posted a video of the Senate chamber uh, right after this was uh, approved in the New York State Senate. And the reaction after the bill passed was absolutely unbelievably reprehensible. So, and it was very appropriate that this was on the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Cuomo made sure of that. But the entire Senate chamber, or at least that what you can see in the video, they stood up and cheered. They were literally hooting and hollering as if their team had made, you know, the buzzer beating basket or they had just hit a walk off home run or something like that. They were literally clapping and clamoring. Women were crying because they were so excited. Literally, that's what happened. 
And then you got Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, who's uh, a self-proposed Catholic, which I don't know how that's really going to work. He ordered that one World Trade Center be lit up pink to celebrate. I mean, literally, just just think about that. They they usually light up the Empire State Building to celebrate, you know, holidays or or, or big things like that. They lit up one World Trade Center, this this symbol of unity of the United States of America. They lit it up pink to celebrate this law. And even since then, I've, I've gotten a, on a lot of different news sites that have to do with abortion. There was a video that popped up, and, and shout out to Reg Aldrich for shooting this uh, video over to me. He's he's one of our uh, first and biggest followers of our content, and a, a buddy of mine from college, he shot me this uh, news story that I kind of heard about that I hadn't seen it. But there's a video floating around. Uh, it's about a one-minute long video of an abortionist kind of describing the process and how well the woman did during the process. But he's got this pan and there's just like a bunch of stuff in the pan. And then when the camera zooms in, you realize what it is. It's the baby, but the baby's in several hundred pieces. So you can see a hand, you can see a foot, you can see all these things. He's just kind of running it under the water. And according to him, he's just making sure there's not something left in the mother, right? Because if they accidentally left like a foot or a leg or something up in there, you know, it could get infected and it could actually bring you know, harm to uh, the abortive mother. Correct. Like, you know, that's kind of one of those things. But the most damaging thing is this guy holds up the baby's severed head for the camera. And don't worry, guys, I included a link for it so you can go and watch it so you can see what evil really looks like. And this guy is just so callous in his description of what had happened. You know, he's talking to the woman at the end of the video like, oh, gosh, you did such a good job. You know, it went about how we how we thought it would. The baby was at, you know, 20 weeks. He probably didn't use the word baby. I can't remember exactly what he used. He probably used some sort of, you know, sterilized medical term or something like that. But all this stuff has happened just since I recorded the last podcast. And then even today, uh, I, well, I heard this yesterday before I, uh, I recorded this podcast, the state of Virginia is is moving to get abortion uh, up to the 40 weeks, like up to the date of birth. I think up to this point, it has been struck down. Rhode Island, the, the governor, again, another Catholic, the, she said that she would sign any bill and approve any bill that would approve abortion up to the day of birth. This is where we're heading, guys. And it's only getting worse. And this isn't what this episode is about, but I'm going to continue bringing it to you. But here's the thing, guys, is God's in control here. God, God has sovereignty over all of this, but God will give America over to our sins. And if you don't believe me, let's just go to Romans 1 and I'll read passages 18 through 25 for you. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the thing, guys. God's going to give us over to this. And this isn't some sort of thing like, you know, rapture thing, like God's going to, you know, give America over to its sin and things like that. But let's not just pretend that God has shown favor to America for no reason. 
And for something like this to stand in this country, it's absolutely reprehensible. And we're going to continue talking about it. But guys, we're going to shift gears here. We're actually going to go into this, which this episode, I've been looking forward to this episode, maybe longer than you guys have. I've had guys wanting me to talk about toxic masculinity pretty much since episode one of this podcast came out a couple of years ago, right? It's just one of those subjects that for a guy to be in the men's ministry space to talk about things in the way that I do, it's, it's crazy that it's taken me this long, but I was always looking for the right time. Because that's the thing is, you know, we'll plan episodes out a few weeks in advance, but then if something comes up in, you know, the news or in current events, or if there's something else that kind of strikes my fancy, I'll, I'll bring that into the fold. But toxic masculinity was always that thing out there amongst some other things that I'm going to get to at some point, but it just didn't ever make sense. But thank you to Gillette for putting out a commercial that made it make sense. So if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, where you been? <laughs> where you been? This Gillette commercial has absolutely gone viral because apparently Gillette, a company that makes razors mainly for men, they're getting into the whole virtue signaling game. But hey, it's led me to want to record this podcast and get it out to all you guys so it's going to work out great for all of us involved. So what exactly did Gillette do for those of you that didn't know? Well, first of all, let's back up a little bit. Gillette, obviously a razor company, but something that y'all may not have known is Gillette's market share over the last several years has really been taking a dive. So they're, they're having a hard time with millennials and Gen Z markets. They're just not getting the traction that they've had with you know the boomers or Gen X or, or any of those types of markets. And so, because they've been kind of getting cut out by the middleman, they've been cut, been cutting uh, getting cut out rather by, you know, what's that one dollar shave club, you know, stuff like that, where you can just get razors sent to your house. So I guess in all of their infinite wisdom, all of their C-suite decided to get together and be like, you know, what would be awesome? Let's just go full social justice warrior. And I bet we'll sell a ton of razors. <laughs> like that sounds like a great idea. So what they did is they made a Super Bowl commercial, but they released it early. It's about a 90 second commercial or so. And this thing immediately went viral. So I've got the link for it here at the end. So if you haven't heard of this commercial or anything like that, you might go ahead and skip to the show notes and the links right there. So you can take a look and then you can come back in and listen to what we're going to talk about. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go ahead and read to you what the narrator is saying throughout this video. So here we go. Is this the best a man can get? Is it? We can't hide from it. It's been going on far too long. We can't laugh it off. Making the same old excuses. But something finally changed and there will be no going back because we, we believe in the best in men to say the right thing, to act the right way. Some are already are in ways big and small, but some is not enough because the boys watching today will be the men of tomorrow. So if you look at it just from the text, it doesn't seem that bad, right? But when you combine the narrator's audio with the visuals, it starts to go off the rails. So throughout this commercial, you're seeing them showing bullying, uh, womanizing, kind of like, you know, objectifying women, hashtag me too type stuff. You see uh, an example of mansplaining, of boys roughhousing, um, and they kind of show that all throughout. And so they're obviously trying to draw a dichotomy between you know, the way men act and the way men should act, you know, as if they're, they're kind of making this happen. Interestingly enough, though, there's no trans men in this video. 
So, so maybe this isn't the episode to go into that, but I find that kind of interesting. If you're going to go full, full social justice warrior, you might as well have a guy with a beard wearing a dress or something like that. But let's digress just a little bit. The ending text, this is not the narrator talking, but the ending text that comes up in the video is the best a man can get. It's only by challenging ourselves to do more that we can get closer to our best. So this is virtue signaling of the highest order. I mean, that's exactly what this is. And here's the thing is you put out something like that. And there's a lot of things that kind of come out like this in our world and nothing really happens. No one really looks at it. Or you might find a few fringe people that are looking at it. Maybe, you know, a few thousand people looking at it or something like that. But this thing got out to a lot of people. As of the recording of this podcast, there's about 28 million views on YouTube. But interestingly enough, about 1.3 million thumbs downs on the video far outpacing the thumbs ups. You don't really see that a lot with YouTube videos, especially ones that quote unquote go viral. So this thing has really been received rather poorly, which is hilarious because they set out to, to make some huge statement, some grandiose thing. It's kind of blown up in their face a little bit. So, so here's the thing. If the Gillette team was going for publicity, I mean, they nailed it. I mean, Gillette, no one was talking about Gillette. You don't even think about Gillette until you go to Walmart and trying to pick out razors and they're, you know, 80% of them are Gillette brand, right? I mean, but if they were going for lasting social change, I mean, they failed miserably. This is like significantly blown up in their faces, which, which is interesting and also very, very hilarious. But if they were going for regaining lost market share, which is what they're claiming, you know, this is a business claiming they're doing this for business reasons, but also to be socially relevant. I mean, I guess time will tell on that. I mean, I can say for me, I, I won't be buying any Gillette products anytime soon, but if you buy Gillette products, who gives a crap? They're just razors. It doesn't really matter. But if you want to boycott them, sure, boycott them. I'm not calling what I'm doing a boycott. I'm just going to choose to buy other razors because I don't like being lectured to by a bunch of morons in some boardroom somewhere that have nothing to do with me. But guys, really, the joke is on them because this whole commercial, they're trying to make it seem like men are terrible and everybody accepts of this type of manhood. And this is what modern masculinity and manhood is. But guys, good men already think the things that were shown in that video are stupid. They think those things aren't real masculinity. I mean, are there any guys out there that really think that bullying is like a good thing that we're all high-fiving each other? Like, yeah, bullying, let's pick on the little guy or the little gal. Like, we don't think that way. You know, that, that people are, do we think it's okay for men to purposely embarrass women by mansplaining? Well, what she's really trying to say, like, no one really thinks that's real. Like, we don't accept that in any way. But I will say this is there was one thing about the commercial that I felt was especially reprehensible that they showed a couple of boys roughhousing in the yard, right? You know, two similarly sized boys just, you know, wrestling around. And then they show this big, long clip of men saying, boys will be boys, boys will be boys. And it shows them all lined up at a bunch of grills, basically just looking like robots saying boys will be boys. And I'm like, wait, were they, were they showing a couple of boys roughhousing in the yard and presenting that as like, that was a bad thing? Like this is an overall negative. This wasn't a bigger kid picking on a smaller kid. This was a couple kids just, you know, getting together and wrestling a little bit. I mean, what was it? What was the big deal? So I thought they missed the mark pretty much everywhere that you can miss the mark. But what I will say is this commercial has brought toxic masculinity back into the public discussion. And so what we decided to do here at Undaunted Life and on this podcast is that we're finally going to go into this topic. But this is really too big, big of a topic to go through one in kind of one episode. And I think that's maybe what's kept us from recording an episode on this for so long 
is because, I mean, how do you even tackle this? There's literally so many facets to this, and it just it was hard for me to kind of get my head around, okay, how are we going to present this in a way that makes a lot of sense for people? So what we decided to do is we're going to do a two-parter. So episode 60, the one you're listening to right now, is going to be on toxic masculinity, and it's going to be a history of toxic masculinity, and then you'll have to come back next week for part two, which is going to be a future. So today in this podcast, what we're going to hope to do for you is give you a really good idea of what the history of toxic masculinity is, okay? Essentially, we're going to try to get you from where all this stuff, all the ruminations of this started, and we're going to get you to today, kind of what's going on right now, what the temperature of all this is right now, and then next week, we're going to look out in the future. We're going to try to forecast a little bit, and then we're going to try to see what we can do to give you guys hints and ideas as to how we should operate going forward. So launching in right here, I want to go into a history of toxic masculinity, but when I was doing my research... It was very interesting to me and not really all that surprising that the roots of toxic masculinity were actually in something else. And that something else is something called hegemonic masculinity. So hegemonic, H-E-G-E-M-O-N-I-C, hegemonic masculinity. And it was a very interesting deep dive. And I read a lot on this subject, but to be honest with you, and I think this is the second time I've done this on this podcast, Wikipedia actually did a pretty dang good job of distilling all this information down. And as I was reading through uh, hegemonic masculinity and having it transition into toxic masculinity, masculinity via Wikipedia, I felt like it did a really good job. It almost broke down like, like a peer reviewed paper. Like that's what it felt like. And because everything that was all the statements that were made, it was backed up with other things in the bibliography and you could go check it out. So what I'm going to do today is not only am I going to include this link so you can read the totality of this on your on your own. I'm going to read through uh, this section that Wikipedia put out there because I think it's going to be really, really helpful for you guys to understand where this came from. And to be honest with you, this is the best place that kind of put it all together in one area. So we're going to go ahead and launch in right here. History of hegemonic masculinity. The concept of hegemonic masculinity was first proposed in field reports from a study of social inequality in Australian high schools in 1982. In a related conceptual discussion of the making of masculinities and the experiences of men's bodies, and in a debate over the role of men in Australian labor politics. These beginnings were organized into an article which critiqued the male sex role literature and proposed a model of multiple masculinities and power relations. This model was integrated into a systematic sociological theory of gender. The results, the resulting six pages in Gender and Power, apparently that's a magazine of some kind, by R.W. Connell on hegemonic masculinity and emphasized femininity became the most cited source for the concept of hegemonic masculinity. This concept draws its theoretical roots from the Gramscian term hegemony as it was used to understand the stabilization of class relations. The idea was then transferred to a problem of gender relations. Hegemonic masculinity draws some of its historical roots from both the fields of social psychology and sociology, which contributed to the literature about the male sex role that had begun to recognize the social nature of masculinity and the possibilities of change in men's conduct. This literature preceded the women's liberation movement and feminist theories of patriarchy, which also played a strong role in shaping the concept of hegemonic masculinity. The core concepts of power and difference were found in the gay liberation movement, which had not only sought to analyze the oppression of men, but also oppression by men. This idea of a hierarchy of masculinities has since persisted and strongly influenced the reformulation of the concept. 
Empirical social research also played an important role as a growing body of field studies documented local gender hierarchies and local cultures of masculinities in schools, male-dominated workplaces, and village communities. Finally, the concept was influenced by psychoanalysis. Sigmund Freud produced the first analytic biographies of men and showed how adult personality was a system under tension, and the psychoanalyst Robert J. Stoller popularized the concept of gender identity and mapped its variation in boys' development. Then it goes into uh, really a lot of detail into some of those different areas, and by a lot, I mean a lot a lot of great detail in some of those areas, but again, I just want to distill this down to kind of give you guys some of the higher points and the higher nuggets. So we're going to go ahead and move on to the next section of this article called Framework of Hegemonic Masculinity. The particular normative form of masculinity that is the most honored way of being a man, which requires all other men to position themselves in relation to it, is known as hegemonic masculinity. Originally, hegemonic masculinity was understood as a pattern of practice that allowed men's dominance over women to continue. In Western society, the dominant form of masculinity or the cultural ideal of manhood was primarily reflective of white, heterosexual, largely middle-class males. So you can see where this is going. The ideals of manhood espoused by the dominant masculinity suggested a number of characteristics that men are encouraged to internalize into their own personal codes and which form the basis for masculine scripts of behavior. These characteristics include violence and aggression, stoicism, which is emotional restraint, courage, toughness, physical strength, athleticism, risk-taking, adventure and thrill-seeking, competitiveness, and achievement and success. Hegemonic masculinity is not completely dominant, however, as it only exists in relation to non-hegemonic subordinated forms of masculinity. Hegemonic masculinity is neither normative in the numerical sense, as only a small minority of men may enact it, nor in an actual sense, as the cultural ideal of masculinity is often a fantasy figure, such as John Wayne or John Rambo. Hegemonic masculinity may not even be the commonest pattern in the everyday lives of men. Rather, hegemony can operate through the formation of exemplars of masculinity, symbols that have cultural authority despite the fact that most men and boys cannot fully live up to them. Hegemonic masculinity imposes an ideal set of traits which stipulate that a man can never be unfeminine enough. Thus, fully achieving hegemonic masculinity becomes an unattainable ideal. Complicity to the aforementioned masculine characteristics was another key feature of the original framework of hegemonic masculinity. Yet still, since men benefit from the patriarchal dividend, they generally gain from the overall subordination of women. However, complicity is not so easily defined as pure subordination since marriage, fatherhood, and community life often involved extensive compromises with women rather than simple domination over them. In this way, hegemony is not gained through necessarily violent or forceful means, but it is achieved through culture, institutions, and persuasion. The interplay of gender with class and race creates more extensive relationships among masculinities. For example, new information technology has redefined middle-class masculinities and working-class masculinities in different ways. In a racial context, hegemonic masculinity among whites sustains the institutional oppression and physical terror that have framed the making of masculinities in black communities. It has been suggested that historically, suppressed groups like inner-city African-American males exhibit the more violent standards of hegemonic masculinity in response to their own subordination and lack of control. This idea of marginalization is always relative to what is allowed by the dominant group, therefore creating subsets of hegemonic masculinity based on existing social hierarchies. 
And this is kind of at the point of the article where we start to really see the rise of the phraseology and the the thought process and philosophies behind toxic masculinity. So let's go ahead and go into that section here. Connell argues that an important feature of hegemonic masculinity is the use of quote-unquote toxic practices such as physical violence, which may serve to reinforce men's dominance over women in Western societies, and this was cited back in 2005. So basically, back in 2005 is where we first start seeing the phrase toxic masculinity, okay? Other scholars have used the term toxic masculinity to refer to stereotypical masculine gender roles that restrict the kinds of emotions allowable for boys and men to express, including social expectations that men seek to be dominant, aka the alpha male, and limit their emotional range primarily to expressions of anger. So now we're going to go talk about toxic masculinity in psychology. Terry Coopers defines toxic masculinity as the constellation of socially regressive male traits that serve to foster domination, the devaluation of women, homophobia, and wanton violence. According to Coopers, toxic masculinity serves to outline aspects of hegemonic masculinity that are socially destructive, such as misogyny, homophobia, greed, and violent domination. These traits are contrasted with more positive aspects of hegemonic masculinity, such as pride in one's ability to win at sports, to maintain solidarity with a friend, to succeed at work, or to provide for one's family. Toxic masculine norms are a feature of life for men in American prisons, where they are reflected in the behavior of both staff and inmates. The qualities of extreme self-reliance, domination of other men through violence, and avoiding the appearance of either femininity or weakness comprise an unspoken code among prisoners. Suppressing vulnerable emotions is often adopted in order to successfully cope with the harsh conditions of prison life, defined by punishment, social isolation, and aggression. These factors likely play a role in suicide among male prisoners. Bullying of boys by their peers and domestic violence experienced by boys at home can also be expressions of toxic masculinity. The often violent socialization of boys produces psychological trauma through the promotion of aggression and lack of intimate relations with others. Such trauma is often disregarded, such as the saying, boys will be boys, with regard to bullying. Now we're going to talk about the health effects associated with toxic masculinity, at least according to this article. Men who adhere to traditionally masculine cultural norms, such as risk-taking, violence, dominance, primacy of work, need for emotional control, desire to win, and pursuit of social status, tend to be more likely to experience psychological problems such as depression, stress, body image problems, substance abuse, and poor social functioning. The effect tends to be stronger in men who also emphasize masculine norms, such as self-reliance, seeking power over women, and sexual promiscuity or playboy behavior. The social value of self-reliance has diminished over time as modern American society has moved more more toward interdependence. Both self-reliance and the stifling of emotional expression can work against mental health as they make it less likely for men to seek psychological help or to possess the ability to deal with difficult emotions. Preliminary research suggests that cultural pressure for men to be stoic and self-reliant may also shorten men's lifespans by causing them to be less likely to discuss health problems with their physicians. Now we're going to talk about the, about the men's movement, and some of y'all that uh, listened to the Red Pill episode, you might uh, recognize some of this. Some authors associated with the myopoetic or mythopoetic men's movement have referred to the social pressures placed upon men to be violent, competitive, independent, and unfeeling as a toxic form of masculinity, in contrast to a real or deep masculinity that they say have been lost with modern society. The academic Shepard Bliss proposed a return to agrarian as an alternative to the potentially toxic masculinity of warrior ethic. Some examples of these movements include the Men's Rights Movement, or the MRA, which is the main group in which men claim they claim to strive for equality. 
Sociologist Michael Kimmel writes that Bliss's notion of toxic masculinity can be seen as part of the myo or here's that word again, mythopoetic movement's response to male feelings of powerlessness at a time when the feminist movement was challenging traditional male authority. Thus, Shepard Bliss, for example, rails against what he calls toxic masculinity, which he believes is responsible for most of the evil in the world, and proclaims the unheralded goodness of the men who fight the fires and till the soil and nurture their families. Okay, guys, I know that took quite a bit, but um, again, I distilled a lot of what that article went down into. I skipped over a whole bunch of sections, and I kind of distilled it down into that. And to be honest with you, if you were to listen to something like that, you'd be like, man, we got to get rid of this toxic masculinity thing. This is like an existential threat. I mean, you hear something like that and you, and you hear so many dangerous strings and threads that, that come through that. And gosh, that's just got to be something that's got to be taken care of, right? I mean, that's just something that every single one of us should be talking about. I mean, this should be at the top of every politician's mind when it comes to the laws that they're thinking about, you know, enacting for the country, right? But guys, we just have to be real about something here. And I know for some of you, it probably made you frustrated that I was even reading that, right? You just hear these things and, you know, you get all these, uh, all these just ideals that you don't agree with or ideals that just don't really fit into what you think masculinity is. But there's a reality to this entire line of study. And that's like something like math, toxic masculinity studies are possible only because of the strength and sacrifice of sheepdogs. Right? For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, obviously, if we go back to the book on combat, that's where you get the concept of, you know, the wolf, the sheep and the sheepdogs and the sheepdogs are basically the ones that, that protect people. They protect the, the sheep from the wolf. And the thing about it is in America, and let's just say the broader West a bunch of alpha males got together in the early 20th century and made sure that we could have stupid, ridiculous conversations about toxic masculinity in 2019. Because guess what, guys? You're listening to this podcast because you understand English, which is the language that I'm speaking. Because without those alphas, I would be speaking German right now. And that is not a ridiculous stance for me to take. Because if a bunch of alphas from the West didn't go over and put down evil, socialist evil in the Nazi regime and take care of World War I and World War II, there is no way that we would be living a life like what we're living right now. Because we've had such relative peace. And I'm going to specifically talk about the United States here, but again, this is applicable to the entire West. We have so pushed to the fringes the idea of defensive country. And again, you're talking, you're listening to a guy right now. That's not a veteran, right? So for my veterans out there, shouts out to you because you're no matter what, you're going to be a better man than I am because you sacrificed for this country. But for someone like me, I've never had to really think about war. I've never really had to think about what it would be like to leave my family behind, to be potentially saying bye to my loved ones for the last time. I've never had to think about those things. I've never had to think about what if a country attacks us? like the Japanese did at Pearl Harbor. Like I'm, I'm in the car and I'm immediately going to war and like, and we're taking care of business. Right. And we're going to, we're going to set this right, at least here on this world. Right. But we're so sterilized. Less than 1% of the American population actually serves in the armed forces and way less than a percentage of that are actually in the line of fire where they could be taking an enemy bullet to the forehead. Right. But 
because it's so sanitized. We've been sanitized from the Iraq war, from Afghanistan, from what's going on in Syria, from what's going on on with Boko Haram all over Africa, what's going on with those individuals and those things and the places where you don't even know that we're at is that we don't have to think about them on a regular basis. So for decades, we've had a bunch of dorks that have been sitting around and thinking about, well, um, what's something that I can raise hell about? Well, I don't really like the fact that all these alphas are around and winning all the things and taking all the women. And you know what? Let's just create gender theory. I mean, just think about gender studies in the way that we understand it today has not been around for a very long time because there hasn't been uh, that much latitude to be able to even contemplate such things because life was so hard. Surviving was so hard, right? And defending yourself against these actual threats and even existential threats and all these different things was so overwhelming to us. But for how many decades have we not had to do that? Is anyone listening to this podcast have to go kill their food? Like you're constantly on the lookout for food because you can't just like go to the grocery store and buy a can of soup and some meat at the deli, right? I mean, life has gotten so easy for most of us. We're not defending the edges of our land. You don't have a neighborhood watch that's like defending you against a neighborhood from across the street. We're so soft. And because of that softness, we can sit around and think about stupid crap like toxic masculinity. But here's the thing about it, guys. Toxic masculinity is being pushed by this feminist agenda, but also the feminist agenda is being pushed by a bunch of beta males. And here's the thing about the beta males, guys. They have the loudest voice right now. The beta males have the loudest voice right now because they are emboldened by people that align with the political left, more of the liberal side of things. They're emboldened by the the university system. I mean, they're, they're also emboldened by the knowledge that alphas, like a lot of you listeners out there right now, probably won't hurt them. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. We live in an era where people will say things online. Go back to the episode of uh, You Mad Bro, where we're talking about people that are way willing to flame and say these horribly horrific things online because they're not saying it to someone's face. That's the thing about guys is if you say something that bad to a guy's face, you got to worry about the right hook. You know what I mean? And so as I was thinking through this, I thought back to what we considered to be the best book of last year, which is 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. And in rule number 11, uh, that's the rule called don't do not bother children when they are skateboarding. I remembered this section and I went back and got it. So I want to read it to you here because I feel like this is really appropriate to my point that the beta males have been given too much of a, of a megaphone here. So let me just read this section here. I'm, I'm cutting a few places out and kind of splicing it together, but it's all in rule number 11. So here we go. Children in father absent homes are four times as likely to be poor. That means their mothers are poor too. Fatherless children are at much greater risk for drug and alcohol abuse. Children living with married biological parents are less anxious, depressed, and delinquent than children living with one or more non-biological parent. Children in single parent families are also twice as likely to commit suicide. The strong turn towards political correctness in universities has exacerbated that problem. The voices shouting against oppression have become louder, it seems, in precise proportion to how equal, even now increasingly skewed against men, the schools have become. There are whole disciplines in universities forthrightly hostile towards men. These are the areas of study, dominated by the postmodern neo-Marxist claim that Western culture, in particular, is an oppressive structure created by white men to dominate and exclude women and other select groups successful only because of the da- that domination and exclusion. Consider this as well. 
In regard to oppression, any hierarchy creates winners and losers. The winners are, of course, more likely to justify the hierarchy and the losers to criticize it. I will repeat that because this is very important to my point. The winners are, of course, more likely to justify the hierarchy and the losers to criticize it. But one, the collective pursuit of any valued goal produces a hierarchy as some will be better and some worse at that pursuit, no matter what it is. And number two, it is the pursuit of goals that in large part lends life its sustaining meaning. We experience almost all the emotions that make life deep and engaging as a consequence of moving successfully towards something deeply desired and valued. The price we pay for that involvement is the inevitable creation of hierarchies of success, while the inevitable consequence is difference in outcome. Absolute equality would therefore require the sacrifice of value itself, and then there would be nothing worth living for. We might instead note with gratitude that a complex, sophisticated culture allows for many games and many successful players, and that a well-structured culture allows the individuals that compose it to play and to win in many different fashions. It also... It is also perverse to consider culture the creation of men. Culture is symbolically, archetypally, mythically male. That's partly why the idea of the quote-unquote patriarchy is so easily swallowed. But it is certainly the creation of humankind, not the creation of men, let alone white men who nonetheless contributed their fair share. European culture has only been dominant to the degree that it is dominant at all for about 400 years. On the time scale of cultural evolution, which is to be measured at minimum in thousands of years, such a time span barely registers. Furthermore, even if women contributed nothing substantial to art, literature, and the sciences prior to 1960 and the feminist revolution, which is not something I believe, then the role they played raising children and working on the farms was still instrumental in raising boys and freeing up men, a very few men, so that humanity could propagate itself and strive forward. So guys, obviously in that section, you could see a lot of what Jordan Peterson is talking about. And for any of you that follow his podcast or any of his lectures or things like that, you see this similar vein in a lot of things that he's saying, because it shouldn't really be this way, but just like everything is apparently nowadays, it's very much so political. And here's the thing. Toxic masculinity is very much so a left versus right issue. So on the left, you have things like Vox and Salon and, you know, the New York Times and you basically liberals and Democrats. And on the right, you have Fox News and the Daily Wire and the National Review and conservatives and Republicans. And here's the thing. If you mention toxic masculinity and it's coming from the left, it is absolutely the most reprehensible thing. It's an existential threat that we've got to take out. It's all that kind of, you know, hyperbolic stuff I was talking about earlier. But you know what's interesting, just as like a little side note, most of the people on the left like love rap culture. Right. I mean, remember Hillary Clinton in 2016 is like she was stumbling over herself to get Jay-Z and Beyonce to like come out and do like a concert for. I think it was in like Ohio or something like that. But the thing about it is, is, is there anything more misogynistic than rap? I mean, is there anything more hashtag me too than rap music? And is it even worse that the fact that a lot of these guys actually do some of the stuff in the songs that they say, right? The things that they do to women and how they marginalize them. But that we don't ever hear about that when we talk about toxic masculinity. I didn't see Hillary Clinton giving Jay-Z a, lect, uh, you know, a lecture when he went up on stage. She was up there trying to dance or whatever the heck she was doing. But then on the right side of the issue, you know, they're talking about masculinity. But where I feel like the right gets it wrong, if we can say it that way, no pun intended. But where the right gets it wrong is they just want to defend manhood, you know, wholesale. And they don't want to have that conversation about what manhood should be. And guys, next week, we're going to talk a lot about that, what manhood should be. 
What is a biblical definition of manhood? What should you be teaching your sons right now? What should you be teaching your nephew? What should you be teaching your little brother? Those are the things that we're going to talk about because the thing about it is, and I've seen this a lot in the, in the age of Trump and the MAGA age that we live in right now, there's a lot of people that are just really ready to go and they're trying to defend them. I saw pastor after pastor after pastor basically just shrug their shoulders and say, boys will be boys whenever Donald Trump was talking about grabbing women by the pussy. When he was talking about the affairs that he was having with women, you guys realize Melania is his third wife, right? And he cheated on the first two with the next wife, right? Melania was the mistress before she was the first lady, right? And so people are just all, you know, on the right, they tend to go way too far and say, well, everything's acceptable. You know, if you bully, it's not so bad. You know, if you mansplain, it's not so bad. You know, if you smack a woman on the rear end as she's walking by, not so bad. But guys, there's a reality of what manhood and what true masculinity actually looks like. So don't buy this nonsense that every form of masculinity is toxic. Don't buy that. Don't buy that at all. And next week, we're going to drive that point home and uh, we're going to use the help of some of our favorites to do that. So definitely be on the lookout for that. It's going to come out next Thursday. And guys, this sums up the history of toxic masculinity and where we are today. But if you want to know where we're supposed to go in the future, come back next week. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is to cultivate manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today we're going to work on your mental resilience, but also it's going to go into the spiritual side, especially with some of the first things that we're going to leave for you. So the very first thing. I mentioned how the Senate chamber in the state of New York erupted in applause. So if you thought I was uh, lying, I included a link to that so you can actually see the horrific video. And then also uh, an equally or maybe more egregious video um, about the abortionist that was holding up that severed head. So you can watch a minute. And so some of you have never seen you know, an abortionist talk, but I think it's really, really important for you to look at that and realize how some people can live with themselves. Because this guy was just basically like going on with his day, almost like he was doing his taxes you know, ripping a baby into hundreds of pieces. So I can include that video on there. So if you want to get really, really pissed off, you should watch that one. But also I left in a few other things. So I talked about the Gillette ad. So again, it's called, we believe the best men can be. Um, so I left that in there for those of you who had never seen it, which kind of launched this whole diatribe into talking about, uh, into talking about toxic masculinity. Also, I included the Wikipedia page that was looking at hegemonic masculinity because again, there was a whole lot of content on there that I didn't get to. And there's a lot of content that I think you guys would really, really enjoy. And if you want to take a deeper dive, this is kind of a good center point for you to basically peel off into those other areas. And then as always, when I bring this book up, I want to make sure that you have access to it. But for those of you that have not read 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos by Jordan Peterson, which is the section of the book that we read earlier in this podcast, I made sure to put that link to the Amazon thing on there for you so that you can check it out. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you would, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If you use the hashtag UndauntedLife, we will be sure to find the post and give it a thumbs up. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, that is how this podcast is going to continue to grow. So please leave us one, but don't forget to leave three or four sentences to let us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the entirety of 2019. So if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, to your church, your business, wherever, hit me up at info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. 
The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life or Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.